0: I invite you to take your copy of scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 95, Psalm 95. And uh, I will read the psalm in its entirety and uh, we'll consider what the Lord has to say to us this morning from his word. Uh, As many of you know, we are in a series in the psalms and um, years ago, When I first started at Berea Baptist Church, it was then, and Berea and Crawford, of course, uh, merged about seven years ago, and we're one church now. But years ago, when I started at uh, Berea, I started preaching series in the Psalms. I just started with Psalm 1 and went for a while, and then I'd stop. And then a year later or two years later, I'd pick up in the Psalms where I left off and preach a few more, and then stop, and have just continued to do that through the years. And so currently, Um, preaching through Psalm 92, so over the years worked up to Psalm 92, and we'll work through to 98, and then we'll stop, and Lord willing, in the uh, future, we'll pick up in the next Psalm. Uh, So uh, this morning, we're looking at Psalm 95, Psalm 95, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 and read through to verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation." and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known My ways. Therefore, I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word, and especially, Lord, for the Psalms that call us to worship You, that give us words to express our own experiences when we don't have words, that teach us what it means to live the Christian life when we experience the highest of joys and the deepest of sorrows. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we turn to Your Word this morning, and in particular to Psalm 95, that You would teach us, and Lord, that You would make us a people who worship You in spirit and in truth. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And when we speak of glorifying God, really what we're talking about is worshiping God, making much of God. And one of the ways we glorify God, one of the ways we worship God, is by enjoying God, in particular by enjoying His goodness and His grace shown to us through Jesus Christ. And it's remarkable how much the Bible talks about how we are to glorify and worship God. Specifically, how we, as His gathered people, are to worship Him. In fact, the Bible teaches us that there is nothing more significant, there is nothing more vital, there is nothing more urgent than for us to understand what it means to glorify God And to understand how we are to glorify God and to worship Him. So understand, the Bible not only tells us that we are to worship God. In other words, we ought to do it. The Bible tells us how we are to worship God. How we are to go about doing it. And Psalm 95 does just that. In Psalm 95, the psalmist calls us to worship God. And then He instructs us on how we are to worship God, and then He warns us of the consequences if we refuse to worship God. So I want us to look at Psalm 95 this morning in three parts, so it breaks down nicely into three stanzas. So first of all, we will consider in verses 1 through 5, worship the Lord with joyful song. Secondly, Worship the Lord with reverent submission in verses six through seven. And then third, in verses seven through eleven, worship the Lord with a sincere heart. So worship the Lord with joyful song, worship the Lord with reverent submission, and worship the Lord with a sincere heart. So look first of all there in verses one through five. We read these words O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Now, you'll notice there that in the first couple of verses, there are four calls to worship. You see it there in verse one. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. That's the first one. The second one, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The third one, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. The fourth one, let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. So in just two verses, we have four calls to worship. And another thing we see here in these opening verses is that the Lord is partial to singing. He invites it. He enjoys it. He delights in it. So we could say as well that these four calls to worship are really four calls to sing. So you notice there, it's very explicit in verse 1, let us sing to the Lord. And then he says, let us make a joyful noise. And that idea of making a joyful noise seems to uh, indicate or imply instrumentation and singing as well. And then in verse 2, come into his presence with thanksgiving. And then he goes on to say the parallel statement to that in verse 2 is, make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So again, coming into his presence with thanksgiving is associated with songs of praise. And making a joyful noise, which he mentions in verse 1 and in verse 2, are now associated with songs of praise. So the Lord is inviting us again and again and again to come to him and to sing to him. And why singing? As we come to the Lord, because this is the Lord is teaching us here not only that we are to worship Him, but how to worship Him. And He says, if you come to Me to worship Me, I want you to come to Me with song. I want you to come to Me with singing. And why does He call us to come to Him with singing? Well, because the Lord doesn't want us just to know the truth. The Lord doesn't just want us to speak the truth. The Lord wants us to feel the truth and to delight in the truth and to delight in who He is. And one of the ways that He enables us to do that is through song. Through song, our affections and our emotions are stirred to rejoice in what it is that we believe and we confess about God and who He is. Not only does singing, though, engage our affections and our emotions, but singing engages our bodies. See, we are not just minds, intellect. We are not just, we could say, hearts, if we're referring to our affections, our emotions. We are also been given bodies. We could say that we are embodied souls. And so we take a deep breath in, right? Right? And then we use our voices to sing out to the Lord because the Lord would have us to worship Him with all that we are. With our minds as we reflect upon the truth that we know. With our hearts and our affections as we delight in that truth. And with our bodies as we sing with our voices praises to Him. Therefore, the Lord says, our worship should be characterized by singing with joyful song. Notice this as well in our text, that the emphasis is on singing together. You see it there in verses 1 and 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. So, let me say that Singing to the Lord in the shower is great. You might like to sing in the shower. That's a wonderful thing. I like to sing in the shower sometimes. That may be too much information, but I do. (laughs) Singing to the Lord in your car is wonderful. Sometimes I sing to the Lord in the car. My kids don't like that so much, but sometimes I do it. Recently, I saw that Jerry, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a wonderful Christian woman and... um, an author. Uh, Since the age of 17, uh, she has been paralyzed from her shoulders down and uh, experiences, even today, oftentimes great pain. And she recently shared that when she's having a particularly difficult day, that she will turn to a hymn in the afternoon to center her heart on the Lord. And so it's a wonderful thing if you're having a difficult day, a hard day, to turn to a hymn and to sing to the Lord. But notice, as great as it is to sing in the shower, to sing in our car, to sing to the Lord using a hymn maybe in the afternoon, the psalmist here is not simply calling you to sing or calling me to sing. He is calling us to sing together. And why? One of the reasons why is because when God calls us together to worship Him We And this is so important to understand. We are not just called to sing to God in praise, but we are called to sing to one another as we praise Him. Did you know that? Because when we gather together to worship the Lord, not only are we singing to God, praises to Him, but we are singing in such a way that we are reminding one another of the truth we believe. We are reminding one another of who God is. We're reminding one another of His goodness and of His grace. And in a very real way as well, we are encouraging one another to, as one author says, rise to the occasion. Here we are before the Lord. Here we are. We have gathered together as His people, and He has called us to worship Him. And so we're encouraging one another to sing to Him. In a very real sense, it's as though we're saying to one another, you might not feel like being here this morning. You might not feel like singing to the Lord. Your mind may be clouded and your heart may be cold. But stir yourself up. Let us join together and sing to Him with joyful song and with songs of thanksgiving and praise. Do you see when we gather together for worship and we sing to the Lord, we are doing that for one another. We are encouraging one another to worship God. This idea actually is carried forward into the New Testament. And there are two particular places where we see this in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul is speaking there of how the church can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. And then we might ask, well, Paul, how is it that we as the people of God can be filled with the Holy Spirit? And Paul then goes on to say, the very next line, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, so the Apostle Paul is saying here, if you want to be filled, if we want to be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that God will work that in us is as we sing to one another the truth of who God is and His grace and His mercy. And then Paul goes on to write the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So here the goal is that the Word of Jesus, the Word of Christ, the Word of God would dwell in us. And that should not be separated from the aim in Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the two are very closely linked. God's Word and His Spirit should never be separated from one another. So if we want to be filled with the Spirit, we want to be filled with the Word of God, what should we do? The Apostle Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We say, okay, that makes sense. If I'm going to be filled with the Spirit, I'm going to be filled with God's word, then we need to teach God's word to one another, and of course we do that through instruction, we do that through preaching, but that's not the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. Paul says, by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, here it is, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, if we want God's Word to dwell in us richly, then we should sing God's Word to one another. We should sing God's Word to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now I will have to say that unfortunately I believe this is one of the mistakes that is made in much of modern worship. If you think about many worship gatherings today, often the lighting in the room, the arrangement of the stage, the volume of the music is all designed to resemble a concert. So that all the focus is up front on the people who are leading. And why is that? Because people in our culture love going to a good concert. And so the idea is, well let's design the worship gathering, the worship experience, so that it aligns very closely with the experience of a concert, so that those who are coming in will very quickly identify with what's taking place. And let me just say, I enjoy a good concert. Concerts are great, can be. The problem is, what we are called to do in Christian worship is distinctly different from the purpose of a concert. I mean, think about this. When we go to a concert, what is the goal? What is the aim? When we go to a concert, we go to be entertained. We go to enjoy the performance of another. When we go to a concert, we realize that we are going as spectators. The focus is up front, and we want to be entertained by the performer and maybe have some personal experience with the music as the performer entertains us. And so the venue, the setting, the event is designed to create that. So it's dark out there, right? Lights are off on the audience. Because the focus, all the lights are up front. The focus is to be up front. In addition to that, the stage is high and the people are low. Because again, the focus is to be up front. And the music is really loud. Right? When you go to a concert, sometimes if you go to a concert at night, it's hard to go to sleep because you can still kind of like hear the music in your head. The music is really, really loud. And you know why the music is really loud? Because no one came to hear you sing. (laughs) No one came to hear me sing if I'm at the concert, right? Everyone came to hear the performer up on the stage sing. And so the audience might at some point join in, but the point is not to hear the audience. So the music is so loud that if you intend to sing, they will drown you out because nobody's there to hear you sing. Christian worship is intended to be very different. And Christian worship, the biblical, Christ, the biblical worship leader does not say when the people of God gather together on Sunday morning, or at least they should not say, hey guys, I'm really glad that y'all came out this morning to hear me sing. I'm really glad y'all came out this morning to hear the band sing. Right? That's what somebody might say at a concert. The biblical worshiper though, the biblical worship leader says with the psalmist, welcome, let us Sing to the Lord. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And then everything the biblical worship leader does is intended to facilitate that. So the lights... Think about the way we have things designed here at Crawford Avenue. There's intention in this. The lights are on us, yes, up here on the stage. Lights are on you as well. Because the main act isn't up here. When we gather together to worship the Lord, we are the main act. Those of us who are up here, those of you who are out there, we are singing together to the Lord. And we want to encourage that. The words are on the wall because we want you to know very clearly what it is that you are singing. And the music is set at such a volume at least this is our intention, that it facilitates and it supports the singing, but it does not drown out the singing of the congregation. Because we are gathered together to sing to the Lord with one voice in song. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, said it this way, quote, The music must not turn the church into an audience enjoying the music but into a congregation singing the Lord's praise in His presence. And can't we be thankful that John and the rest of our music team leads us and facilitates our singing in this spirit? Now, the psalmist goes on to tell us why it is we should sing And notice this in verse 3. He says, we should sing to the Lord for or because the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And there's a reference to king because we've said that these psalms that we're working through now are referred to as the kingship psalms. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that he's recognizing that all the nations at this time worshipped a god or multiple gods, but the psalmist is saying that the God of Israel, he is the great God among all those gods. He is the king above all the other gods of the nations. He is Yahweh, and therefore we are to sing to Him. And furthermore, not only is He a great God, not only is He a king, but He is the great God because He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Look there in verses 4 and 5. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is, is His, for He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So here the psalmist speaks of the Lord creating and sovereignly ruling over the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea and the land. You know, Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. It's 29,000 feet high. And if you convert that into miles, it's five and a half miles high. So that's, that's quite impressive, right? And then we think about the sea and the ocean. So just a couple of psalms ago, in Psalm 93, we we talked about the fact that the ancients viewed the sea as this unruly, untamed mass of chaos and destruction. And in Psalm 93, the psalmist is rejoicing because the Lord is sovereign over the seas. But did you know that the deepest part of the ocean is the Pacific Ocean's Mariana Trench. And if you were to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, you would have to go 36,000 feet below sea level, or approximately 7 miles. So if you were to take Mount Everest, right, tallest mountain in the world, flip it upside down, put it above the Mariana Trench and you were to travel down to, we could say the top, or if you have it upside down, the bottom of Mount Everest, and you got to the tip, you would still have to travel a mile and a half further down into the sea before you hit the bottom of the ocean. This is one of the reasons, this is hard to fathom, this is one of the reasons why scientists say that about 65% of the earth is still unexplored. And that is largely in reference to the seas. Because just the Pacific Ocean alone, the surface area of the Pacific Ocean is large enough or is larger than all of the continents combined. And notice what the psalmist is saying here In his hand are the depths of the earth. The Mariana Trench, it's in his hand. And and the Mount Everest, The tallest mountain in the world, oh, by the way, the heights of the mountains are His also. And for all these reasons and more, the psalmist says, we are to come before the Lord with song and to sing before Him with joyful singing. So first, the psalmist says that we are to worship the Lord with joyful song Secondly, the psalmist says in verses 6 through 7, we are to worship the Lord with reverent submission, with reverent submission. Look there in verses 6 and 7. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So, we mentioned that in the first five verses of this psalm, there are four calls to worship. Notice here in verse 6 that we encounter three more calls to worship. Oh, come, let us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And notice that all three verbs that are used there, all three of those calls to worship, are calls for us to get low before the Lord." In fact, the word worship literally means to prostrate oneself before another. And then there's bow down and kneel. And in the Hebrew, which is the original language here, these three verbs follow one another immediately after uh, each other in quick succession. So in the original language it reads, come, let us prostrate ourselves, let us bow down, let us kneel. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is, let us get low, let us humble ourselves before the Lord in reverent submission. Now, in the first five verses, the Lord told us that the reason why we are to sing before the Lord is because He's a great God and He's a great King above all gods and because He's the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Notice the reason here, though, in verses 6 through 7 why the psalmist says we are to get low before the Lord. It is because, as he says in verse 6, He is our Maker. So that's similar to what he said in verses 1 through 5. He's our Creator. He created us. But it's also, look at verse 7, because by His grace we enjoy a special relationship with Him. We enjoy a special relationship with this great God who is the King above all other gods. You see it there in verse 7. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. So yes, He is our Creator, but He is also our God. And in His grace and His mercy, He has entered into a special relationship with us so that He describes the relationship that we have with Him as we are His sheep and He is our shepherd. And of course, many of you know that the relationship between sheep the sheep and the shepherd is a special relationship, in particular because sheep are not that bright and they are not able to attend to their own needs And so a shepherd must give special attention and care to make sure that everything is provided for the sheep. And in a similar fashion, the Lord gives special attention and care to us and meets our needs. Now, as Christians, we can't read a passage like this without thinking of the words of the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus declared, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see what Jesus is doing there in John chapter 10? Repeatedly in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is spoken of as the shepherd of his people. And now Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the good shepherd. And what Jesus is doing is He's making an appeal to divinity, to being divine. He's identifying Himself with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. And He goes on to speak of this special relationship that He, the Good Shepherd, has with His people. He says the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. And of course, this is what happened at the cross. When Jesus, the Good Shepherd, put Himself in harm's way. We were under the wrath and the judgment of God, but Jesus died in our place and took the punishment, the wrath, the judgment that we deserve. He gave His life for our life. He died as our shepherd so that we, His sheep, might live and be spared. And like a good shepherd, Jesus says that He now calls us to Himself, He calls us to follow Him. And then Jesus goes on to speak about how not only has He died for His sheep, not only does He call them to Himself and provide for them, but He goes on to say that He will protect them and keep them to the very end. So in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. And so, yes, the psalmist says we should worship the Lord because He's great. Yes, we should worship Him because He is the King above all other gods. Yes, we should worship Him because He's the creator of heavens and the earth. Yes, we should worship Him because He is our maker. But we should also worship Him because in His grace and His mercy, He has entered into this special relationship with us as as, as He is our shepherd and we are His sheep. Even going so far as to lay down His life, in order to redeem us and to save us. You know, we might think, as the psalmist calls us to get low before the Lord, to bow ourselves, to prostrate ourselves, to humble ourselves before the Lord, that the reason why He would tell us to do so is because God is so great. But actually here in this section of the psalm, He tells us to humble ourselves, to get low before the Lord because He's so good. Because He's been so gracious and He's been so kind to redeem us and to save us. Because He's our shepherd and we are His sheep. This is why at Crawford Avenue when we gather together for worship, we intend for our songs and our readings and our prayers to be full of the gospel. To be full of the good news of God's salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. So that when we sing and when we bow before Him in reverence and in fear, we are reminded of His great redemption that He has granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Third, first, worship the Lord with joyful song. Secondly, worship the Lord with reverent submission. And third, worship the Lord with a sincere heart, with a sincere heart. Look there in verses 7 through 11. So the very last line in verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known My ways. Therefore I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. So notice there, the latter part of verse 7, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear His voice. Now this is interesting because as we've been working through verses 1 through 7... What we've seen is that the psalmist has admonished us again and again and again to sing, to make noise. And we could say, to make a lot of it, right? And now we come to verses 7 through 11 and the psalmist instructs us to listen. He says, if you hear His voice... Now, the psalmist here is teaching us something important about biblical worship. Biblical worship, yes, includes music and singing and noise and sometimes a lot of it. But it also includes silence. There is a time in Christian worship for us to use instruments and to use our bodies and our voices to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and there is also a time in Christian worship for us to be still and to be silent and to listen as God speaks to us. And, of course, this dynamic is reflected in our services, right? We gather together as the church, and we sing to the Lord, and we sing with joyful hearts, And then we quiet ourselves and we sit still and we listen as God's word is read and proclaimed. We should also note that as the psalmist calls us here to listen and to hear the voice of the Lord, that this hearing implies more than just an auditory recognition of words, it implies more than just the mental comprehension of a message. The word here in Hebrew for hear is shema, and it's actually closely associated with the idea of obedience. It's very similar to when Jesus would often say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? So what's Jesus saying there? If you have ears to hear, like you can take in the words and mentally make sense of them, if you have the ability physically to hear, then hear. Hear. In other words, take them down into your heart. Consider what is said. Receive it and obey. And we know that this is what the psalmist is referring to because he then goes on to remind us that this is the very thing, hearing and obeying, that the people of God failed to do after they were delivered from Egyptian bondage and slavery. You see it there in verses 8 through 9. Do not... Excuse me, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. Now Mirabah and Masa here are actually references to two specific events that took place in Israel's history. They both occurred after Israel had been delivered from Egyptian bondage and slavery and before Israel had entered into the promised land of Canaan. So the first event occurred and is recorded in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. So on this occasion, God had delivered Israel from Egypt. And you remember, He had done so miraculously. Um, He had broken Pharaoh's will through the ten plagues, and then He led the people through the Red Sea as He parted the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry land. And then as the Egyptian army attempted to follow behind, he let go of the seas and they crashed in and destroyed Pharaoh's army. And so Israel, having been delivered through the Red Sea, is now on her way to Mount Sinai where Moses will receive the Ten Commandments. And on their traveling from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, they stop in a place that's called Rephidim. And they settled there, camped there for a time. And while they were at Rephidim, the water supply begins to run dry, and the people begin to quarrel and to complain against Moses. In fact, the quarreling became so intense that Moses was afraid that the people were going to stone him to death. And so Moses goes to the Lord and calls out to him, and the Lord graciously and miraculously provides the people with water. And Moses called the place Mirabah, which means quarreling. Or, and he also called it Masa, which means testing. So that's the first event. The second incident is recorded in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Now this incident occurs 40 years after the first one. Israel's been wandering in the wilderness for about 40 years. They are eager to enter into the promised land. And uh, for a time, just prior to entering into the promised land, they settle in this place called Kadesh. And once again, they are faced with a shortage of water. And once again, they complain and they quarrel against Moses. And this time, Moses and Aaron. And so Moses cries out to the Lord again as they demand that God provide this water at this moment, at this time. And once again, God graciously and miraculously provides them with the water that they desire. And then we read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 13, these are the waters of Mirabah, where the people quarreled with the Lord. And of course, Mirabah again means quarreling. Now, these are the two occasions that the psalmist is referring to here. And on both occasions, the psalmist indicates that the real issue, the real issue is play, is the heart of God's people. You see it there in verse 8. They hardened their hearts by testing the Lord and by putting Him to the proof. So on the first occasion at Rephidim, instead of looking back and seeing God's deliverance at the Red Sea and trusting Him that He would provide for them and meet them where they were at and meet their needs, instead of that, they tested the Lord and demanded that He provide for them immediately. On the second occasion, instead of the people looking back at how God had provided at Rephidim, now that they are at Kadesh, They again quarrel and complain against the Lord, and they demand that He prove to them His power and His faithfulness. On both occasions, it seems that the people are imposing certain demands upon God and insisting that He meet those demands the way they want Him to meet those demands, or they will not believe in Him and obey Him. Now, These two incidents, as we mentioned before, are separated by 40 years. One, the Rephidim, takes takes place at the beginning kind of of the wilderness wanderings. The other one at Kadesh takes place near the end of the wilderness wanderings. And I think that the reason why the psalmist highlights these two is because he's, he's pointing out the reality that It began this way, the wilderness wanderings. It ended this way. And that is an indication that all of the wilderness wanderings were characterized for the people of God, were characterized by this kind of unbelief, this hardness of heart, testing the Lord and seeking for Him or or demanding that He prove Himself. And so what we see here is that in the Exodus in the wilderness wanderings, God's great concern with His people was their hearts. And so He says in verse 8, "'Do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness.'" And again in verse 10, "'They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known My way.'" And so why does the psalmist mention this in a psalm related to worship and how we are to worship the Lord? Because of course. As God's great concern with His people in the Exodus in the wilderness and wanderings was their heart, so when we gather together to worship the Lord, God's great concern with His people is their heart. Is this not the very thing that the Lord Jesus warned us of in Matthew chapter fifteen, verses eight and nine? Jesus cites the prophet Isaiah and says, "This people honors me with their lips." but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so in a very real way, the psalmist is challenging us here. The psalmist is saying, listen, you're, you're worshiping the Lord. You're, you're singing songs. You're You're giving thanks with your voice and with your mouth. You may even be bowing and kneeling, perhaps raising your hands in praise. But are you listening? Are you hearing the Word of God? And not just hearing it in terms of mentally comprehending what's being said, but are you taking it down into your heart and embracing it by faith? and seeking to walk in obedience. Of course, none of us are perfect. We all need God's redemption and grace, and that's one of the reasons why we gather together for worship, right? Because we need the Lord's mercy. We need His grace. But at the same time, we should understand that authentic biblical worship not only involves outward expressions of praise, but authentic biblical worship involves inward transformation of the heart. Authentic biblical worship will not be content with the concealing of sin, but rather results in the honest confession of sin. Authentic biblical worship cannot peacefully coexist with protecting and coddling and fostering our sin, but rather awakens in us a desire to denounce and forsake our sin. And to turn to God in faith and obedience. In other words, in Christian worship, God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. So the psalmist concludes his psalm with a warning. Look there in verses 10 through 11. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart... And they have not known My ways, therefore I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. Now, this section of Psalm 95 actually is picked up by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. And Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 are essentially an exposition or a sermon on these verses. Now, we don't have time to get into Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and all its fullness this morning, but I would encourage you, maybe even this afternoon, to go to Hebrews chapter 3 verse 17 through Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 and read those verses, what the author of Hebrews has to say about these words here. In our time, though, I just want to make three quick observations of what the author of Hebrews has to say regarding these verses. The first thing that the author of Hebrews indicates is it the idea of rest here in verse 11, therefore they shall not enter my rest. And the immediate context, this reference to rest, has to do with the people of God being delivered from Egypt, going into the wilderness wanderings, and they're longing for the rest of the promised land. They're longing for the rest of Canaan. The promised land represented to them rest, rest from bondage, rest from slavery, uh, rest from the hardships and the difficulties of wilderness wanderings. And for us, that rest represents a home in the presence of God forever. And isn't God so kind to represent heaven to us in that way. The Lord is essentially saying, are you tired? Are you weary of the difficulties and the hardships and the temptations of this life? I'm inviting you to rest, eternal rest, in my presence forever. So that's the first observation. The second observation is this that the warning that we see here in Psalm 95, and then is picked up by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 3 and 4, is for us who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have seemed to believe it and to trust in it. You see, this is what is happening with the people of Israel. They had, at one level, experienced God's salvation and deliverance. Miraculously, right? Pharaoh, his will is broken by the miraculous signs and plagues that God sent upon Egypt. Then they're delivered miraculously through the Red Sea. So they, in that sense, experience God's deliverance and salvation. However, for most of them, that experience did not lead to and result in an inward transformation of the heart. And therefore, although they had had some experience of God's salvation and deliverance, on the whole, they fell under the judgment of God. So the author of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, and he's speaking to Christians. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now this is so very important because there are oftentimes folks who take great assurance and confidence that they're a Christian, that they will enter into God's eternal rest, into heaven, because they had some powerful spiritual experience in the past. It may have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They say, it was, I remember that experience. It was so powerful. I was overcome with emotion. I was weeping. Surely I'm a Christian. And oftentimes when folks are converted, they may have an experience like that and it may be a gift from the Lord and it can be very real and sincere and authentic. But sometimes there are folks who are living in such a way that is Altogether contrary to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And yet they're hanging on to that experience that they had 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And do you see what the psalmist is saying? Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? That experience is not a test. A legitimate affirmation of where you now stand before God. God. We could say it this way. Have you trusted in Christ or did you trust in Christ is a good question. That's a question we should ask. But a better question is, are you trusting in Christ? Today, right now, are you looking to Him in faith? Are you seeking to follow Him as Lord? That is a far surer sign of where you stand before the Lord and of your salvation." The final observation is this, today. You see it there at the latter part of verse 7 in Psalm 95, today if you hear His voice. Actually, the author of Hebrews, when he picks up this passage and begins to unpack it in Hebrews 3 and 4 he picks up on that word today and he uses it five times in those two chapters to emphasize the immediacy, the urgency of the psalmist's words here, the urgency of his warning and his call. Today, today is the day to hear the Word of God. Today is the day to receive it by faith. Today is the day to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Today is the day, if you have never done so before, to turn from your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus and His death on the cross as the sole hope that you have for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. And for us as believers, as the psalmist is, is addressing believers here, today is the day for us to look to Jesus in faith, to trust Him, and to follow Him. And if we do so, then we can worship the Lord with joyful song. We can worship Him with reverent submission. We can worship Him with a sincere heart. And when we pass from this life into the next, by His grace, we will enter into His eternal rest forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege, the opportunity, the joy to worship You. Lord, we do pray now that You would take Your Word and apply it to each of our hearts. We pray that this day, Lord, we would turn to You in faith and we would worship You with joyful song, with reverent submission, and with a sincere heart. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.